This particular change should should be looked at in the context of the increase in the penalties for retaliation for workers exercising their rights under the labor law, and particularly the opportunity now for those plaintiffs and the commissioner of labor to recover the 25% liquidated damages penalty for noncompliance. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. Bob, my co-host, is off today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And today's show is sponsored by Clio, web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com and Landy Insurance that handles malpractice for lawyers at landy.com. Well, legislation was enacted this summer adding more obligations for employers in New York State. Effective October 26, 2009, it amended New York Labor Law Section 195 and will now require employers to provide written notification to their employees at their time of hiring of their rate of pay and the employer's regular payday and obtain written acknowledgement from each employee of the receipt of this written notice. Employers are also required to provide employees who are entitled to overtime under New York State and federal law their regularly hourly rate and overtime rate. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this amended New York Labor Law Section 195, the compliance with it, and what this newly amended law means for New York employees and in their employers. Well, our first guest today is attorney Charlie H. Kaplan. He's a partner in the New York office of my law firm, Sedgwick, Dieter, Moran, and Arnold, LLP. Uh, attorney Kaplan represents management throughout the United States and abroad in virtually all aspects of labor and employment law and related litigation. He is a member of the firm's Employment and Labor Law Group. Mr. Kaplan represents employers before federal and state courts and enforcement agencies. And Charles has also spoken on employment and labor law issues throughout the United States and in Europe, Asia, and Africa to business, legal, academic, and governmental audiences. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Charlie Kaplan. Thanks, Craig. I'm delighted to be here this morning. And our next guest is Barbara S. Melsack. She's a partner in the law firm, in the New York law firm of Gorlick, Kravitz, and Listhouse, where she leads the employment and labor law litigation practice. Barbara is an experienced labor and employment and employee benefits attorney whose unusual combination of private sector, governmental, and managerial experience makes her an effective advocate for her clients in all arenas, whether in the courtroom or at the negotiating table. She's a passionate advocate for individuals seeking redress in the courts and administrative agencies in employment discrimination, employee benefits, wrongful termination, and wage and hour cases. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Barbara Melsack. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, here's a question for either one of you. Uh, how did this legislation come into being? What was what prompted it uh, to get out of the legislature? Well, maybe I'll... I'll start off. I, th I think that this legislation is part of a host of new legislative requirements that uh, we're seeing in New York State. Um, as uh, 
the uh, the listeners who are in New York probably know, uh, for the first time in many years, both the um, New York State uh, Assembly and the State Senate, both branches of our state's legislature, are controlled by the Democrats, as and of course the governor is a Democrat. So um, uh, with that. Uh, situation where we're seeing a number of new requirements, including this advanced written notice of pay rates requirement. In addition, there have been more vigorous enforcement provisions that have been enacted, uh, some uh, changes to the New York human rights law involving additional civil penalties that can now be um, assessed against employers, and also uh, an expansion of the human rights law concerning um, protection of victims of domestic abuse. And I think that all of these changes are, are really harbing uh, of what's going to be continuing to happen in New York with a um, uh, both the, the legislature and the uh, the governor's um, mansion occupied by the Democrats. Uh, Craig, let me add to that that I think that this particular change should be viewed, as Charlie was suggesting, in the context of the, the other changes that, that were passed uh, in this last session, um, and, and credit to the Assembly and the Senate who um, have been accused of being a totally dysfunctional bodies over the last uh, last several months. They did accomplish some, some major changes in uh, in worker protections, and this particular change should should be looked at in the context of the increase in the uh, penalties for retaliation for workers exercising their rights under the labor law, and particularly the opportunity now for both plaintiffs and the commissioner of labor to recover the 25% liquidated damages penalty for non-compliance without having to establish that the employer has acted willfully. In other words, if there's a violation of the labor law, uh, the liquidated damages penalty will be automatic unless the employer can prove the employer acted in good faith. What what I believe prompted the labor law changes, and, and there are, there are other changes to the human rights law as well that we might might want to touch on, but it's the fact that as a result of of both litigation and investigations, and and I've discovered. Uh, personally, and we also do in our firm some advising of small employers, how many employers and employees are simply ignorant of their rights and obligations, Uh, how many employers there are who don't realize that uh, the mere fact that one is a salaried employee does not mean that you are necessarily exempt from the um, having to, to receive overtime. So that I think that what we've seen is a lot of litigation, a lot of investigation that has revealed uh, a lot of ignorance. And this provision is aimed primarily at increasing transparency regarding overtime rates, especially for those non-exempt salaried employees I was talking about. It seems kind of hard to believe that employees would not know what they're going to be paid, though. Well, this this goes beyond just what you're going to be paid. What it is is this is a requirement that you provide written notice not only of your regular rate of pay, but what your um, overtime rate of pay is. And um, you would be surprised how many employees don't realize that they are entitled to overtime, notwithstanding that they're salaried. Um, You would also, um, I I asked one of my clients, one of my union clients, what they thought of the law, and he said, it's brilliant. Um, Why brilliant? He said, because with the, the large numbers of immigrant employees in in the state of New York um, whose language skills are are sometimes sorely lacking, they often don't, really don't understand what they're entitled to get paid. 
And let me let me add, Craig, that I, I think that from an employer's perspective, this adds a, a burden, but it also gives employers an opportunity uh, up front to make sure that they're uh, properly classifying uh, workers as exempt or non-exempt. Uh, when, you know, when those terms are, are used, you know, it, it means exempt or non-exempt from the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law, uh, which uh, requires overtime pay after 40 hours in a week. And uh, there's also a parallel state law. But um, often what happens is, as Barbara just indicated, is a lot of employers, including particularly less sophisticated employers, but you'd be surprised, even employers that you would think are quite sophisticated, uh, will not properly classify uh, workers. And they'll assume, for example, that if someone is getting a salary, that means the uh, employee is exempt from the um, the overtime requirements. Uh, but to be exempt from the overtime requirements in, g- in general, not only do you have to be paid on a salary basis, but you also have to fit into uh, several categories. You know, primarily whether you're an executive, professional. Um, uh, or executive or professional or administrative employee rather than uh, a rank-and-file employee. And those categories have all kinds of – then there are all kinds of definitions concerning those categories. But the bottom line is that the simple fact that somebody is told, well, you, rather than getting paid on an hourly basis, you'll be making, say, uh, $500 or $700 or $1,000 a week doesn't mean that that person is, is not uh, uh, eligible for overtime. Whether they're eligible for overtime uh, has to do with whether they're professional, executive, or administrative, uh, and uh, also getting paid on a salary basis. And if you are truly a professional executive or administrative employee being paid on a salary basis, generally you won't be eligible for overtime, but many other employees are. And what this new requirement does is it requires both advance notice of the rate of pay, but also it requires an employer to say, you know, you're non-exempt. In other words, you're eligible for uh, overtime, and this is your overtime rate, which is Generally, time and a half uh, the the hourly rate, which 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 gets a little which can get a little complicated when it comes to calculating the overtime rate for a salaried employee because um, in, in any particular week um, somebody may be getting paid for uh, non-work time which is not included in the calculation for overtime purposes for that week. I mean, basically the the formula is your remuneration divided by by the number of hours of paid work. So that one of the questions that the law raises, it seems to me, is how do you give this notice to an employee of what their, quote, overtime rate is? And should an employer be giving the notice by by giving um, a, a notice of how the overtime rate is going to be calculated and maybe examples? So that, I, I, and I don't, I'd be interested, Charlie, because I've had my, you know, the small employers who we advise ask that question. Um, well, how do I give this notice? Do I, do I give a number? Do I give a method? What do I do? And, and it, it seems to me at this point, supposedly the, the Commissioner of Labor is going to be coming out with a, a form for the written acknowledgement because the law also requires that you, as that an employer, obtain written acknowledgement of having given this notice to the employee. But I, I have not heard that the um, Commissioner was going to be coming out with any regulations as to how you give the notice in the first place for someone who's a salaried non-exempt employee, and is it sufficient to simply give, you know, a methodology and, and, and maybe, I, I would say, maybe a methodology and some examples would, would be a, a, a good way of doing it. And I don't know, Charlie, what's your 
take on this? Well, I, I, I think it's still unclear because we are still waiting for the uh, commissioner to uh, establish standards for the acknowledgement, which would hopefully also indicate perhaps uh, what the notice itself should should contain. You know, one one thing that this all this does though is that because of the difficulty of often of uh, translating uh, a salaried employee's wages into overtime, uh, you know, where the salaried employee is not exempt, um, it sort of it, it indicates. That that perhaps it may just be simpler with all non-exempt employees to um, you know set forth an hourly rate, and then uh, depending on how many hours they're working in particular pay periods, uh, then they get paid that rate. Um, that that avoids you know the problem of uh, when, when you have um, say someone being paid you know twice a month, and, and so therefore uh, the pay periods are not uniform. Sometimes you have one more day, one one, one less day, uh, dealing with that, and that also deals with the issue which. Uh, Barbara raising, which also becomes a problem for employers of uh, paying someone on a weekly basis, um, and sort of, and, and then mistakenly determining uh, the, the hourly rate by dividing by forty, uh, but where the employer is only say working thirty-five hours because there are seven unworked hours, which are the lunch breaks. So uh, these are all issues which um, um, I think you know will need to be addressed. But again, these are also areas where employers really face risk because an employer that, for example, uh, miscalculates the hourly rate um, will end up owing overtime uh, potentially to employees down the road. So, it's, um, so, again, one thing that this notice requirement up front does is it requires employers to focus on this issue and to realize that uh, a number of the practices that they may be following are incorrect. You know, another, another thing that often comes up in the workplace that, again, I see is the use of what's called comp time or compensatory time, uh, which in the private sector in the United States is, is unlawful. In other words, uh, someone can't work overtime one week and rather than getting paid for it be told well you know you'll get some more vacation down the line uh that the, in some uh, instances in with public sector employees in other words fire fighters police officers a uh, federal law allows comp time but um compensatory time is not allowed at, currently at least in in the uh, in the private sector but a lot of employers particularly with salaried employees um, will use comp time, um, and it's problematic when you're dealing with employees who are covered by the wage and hour laws, who, in other words, are are not not exempt from the wage and hour laws. Barbara, this goes into effect October 26th. Does it apply only to new employees, or are employers going to have to go back in time and catch up with all of the old employees? Well, the notice requirements only apply to new hires after October 26th. 2009. But but I think as Charlie and I think we, we both have been really been alluding to, what this does is really um, uh, encourage uh, or uh, in, in tell employers to take a look at their overall situations with regard to compliance, because I think this will cause people to wake up to the fact that they may be out of compliance when they didn't even intend to be out of compliance, because they've never been been forced to sit down and address a particular issue at a particular point in time, specific question, is this person, I now have to give this person a notice, is this person a non-exempt salaried employee or an exempt salaried employee, how do I calculate this person's overtime, which perforce almost leads you to the question of, well, what am I doing with the person who's sitting next to this person who's been working for me for the last five years? If I'm supposed to be doing it for new hire, Sam, maybe I should have been doing it for 
old employee Jane all these years, and I haven't been doing it right. So I think that this will um, lead a lot of employers to look at their existing practices for their existing employees. And although, you know, the way we're just, there's unquestionably there are, it means, quote, more work. On the other hand, another way of looking at it, this will help to level the playing field amongst employers in New York State, because um, over the last several years, both investigations by employee rights groups and litigation has revealed how many employers there are who really don't pay employees what they're entitled to get. And those employers are are able to undercut and unfairly compete with the employers who do obey the law. And so this this aim this law I think is if you look at it in combination I think you it should be looked at in combination with a new provision that entitles a plaintiff or the commissioner of labor to to obtain the twenty five percent liquidated damages uh, penalty without proving willfulness that that employers need to be concerned I believe that if they're not give the absence of a notice a proper notice under this law could conceivably be um, evidence that would enable, that would preclude an employer from from advancing a good faith defense because it's very hard to advance a good faith defense. Oh, I've, I did this because I thought it was the right thing to do, or you thought it was the right thing to do, but you never provided your employees with with notice of what their rights were in the first place. So the question has been asked of me and my clients, how, how do you enforce this notice requirement? There don't seem to be any penalties involved. And I would suggest that, um, that the enforcement is a kind of um, a, almost interorum, that if you don't comply with this notice provision and you are ultimately investigated or sued, then it will be a lot harder for you to defend practices that might, in fact, be inadvertent, but it will be much harder for you to defend them as inadvertent if you haven't complied with, with the new notice provisions. Yeah, I, I would agree that I think that failure to comply with the notice provisions uh, could be problematic you know, in, in a subsequent case, and in fact could even um, uh, be problematic from the standpoint of whether a violation was willful or not willful. And Barbara's been talking about the 25% penalty at the uh, state level. At the federal level, there's a 100% penalty, in other words, double damages, liquidated damages, for willful violations of the uh, federal uh, wage and hour laws, the Fair Labor Standards Act. And um, so to the extent an employer can be shown that an employer is aware of the law and is just ignoring it, um, and therefore is, is misclassifying its employees, it could, the employer could potentially be subject to um, uh, willful double damages. Um, and as, as for uh, the statute itself, even though it only applies to new hires, um, it's uh, the, the New York State Department of Labor and also good just good and prudent practices really behoove all employers to provide notice of any change in pay rates or pay dates in advance of the start of the payroll period in which the change would be effective. You won't have to go through the whole written notice and acknowledgement uh, requirement that's required for, for new hires, but clearly um, you can't change somebody's uh, wages retroactively. Um, you have to do it prospectively in, in advance. You have to give them the notice. Charlie, you practice across the United States, and I know you've done some work in Europe and Asia. Uh, is this something we've seen before in the United States? Is this brand new? Is it a start of a trend? And how well, is this handled I, I abroad? Think that there's a whole panoply, obviously, of of, um, 
labor laws and, and, and wage and hour laws across the United States. I mean, uh, some states like California, where you are, Craig, uh, have uh, very, very strict enforcement and have other requirements that we don't have in New York, such as overtime uh, when a certain um, uh, maximum period of hours is exceeded uh, in a day. And you don't only look at the, at the 40 hours that are uh, exceeded in a week at the federal level. And different states have different requirements. But I think uh, what this is, is, is um, and I think you're, gonna, you're seeing this in a number of states, you know, to the extent over the last eight years, um, you know, the, uh, the Congress and with a Republican president before President Obama was elected uh, was not that active in um, uh, passing these kinds of uh, laws. Uh, states where uh, you have, uh, particularly where there are Democratic majorities now, you know, are passing these laws. And I think that to a certain extent, this is a, uh, gives you an idea of what may be happening in the next year or two in, in the, at the federal level as, um, you know, again, with Democratic control of uh, both houses of, uh, of Congress as well as the presidency, uh, I would expect to see some, um, perhaps some, and, and there clearly are proposals, uh, enforcement, uh, various enforcement efforts and various other pro, uh, pro-employee and pro-labor um, initiatives, such as the proposed Employee Free Choice Act. There was just a, a bill the other day in the Senate, uh, which uh, at least the Senate passed, saying that uh, you can't have pre-dispute arbitration agreements, which, for example, would require arbitration to have an employment discrimination claim you know, by employees for, for, for federal contractors. So there's a lot of that. And I think in addition, you'll also be seeing, even in the absence, absence of uh, legislative changes, uh, regulatory changes and also enforcement uh, by the agencies um, uh, of the of the existing labor laws, I remember a number of years ago, the late Senator Moynihan was asked whether he supported labor law reform, and his response was, uh, "I'm not concerned about labor law reform. I'm concerned about labor law enforcement." And quite candidly, with the um, this current statutes on the books, I mean, we haven't seen, for example, a, a change in the Fair Labor Standards Act, the wage and hour law. Uh, this is merely a notice requirement. But uh, if, if those statutes are enforced more vigorously, uh, employers uh, have a lot to be concerned about. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we will look at compliance issues and the next steps for employers and employees. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Protect your legal practice with Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency and feel confident that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price. Whether you are establishing a new firm, adding an attorney to your team, or exploring new options for your existing firm, Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency can match your specific needs with experience unmatched in the industry. Visit us at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Your practice deserves the best.
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with attorney Charlie Kaplan, who's a partner in the New York office of Sedgwick, Dieter, Moran, and Arnold, and Barbara Melsack, who is a partner in the New York firm of Gorlick, Kravitz, and Listhouse. Barbara, you mentioned that uh, we expect some type of guidance from the New York uh, Department of Labor in terms of these receipts and formats, but employers are going to be required to deal with this. How do they start dealing with it without any guidance? I would suggest consulting their human resources and, and, and legal resources for advice in drafting notices. I don't think anybody should wait until the Commissioner of Labor comes forward with a, a form of acknowledgement notice. And I think a large part of this is, is common sense. Um, and um, that clarity in, in drafting these notices is going to be important. So that, and I think that a good faith effort, I, I, I think the absence of action can be uh, lead to criticism and problems. But I don't think a good faith effort to comply with the requirement of, of the law will will find the uh, Department of Labor going after an employer. I would suggest also that um, uh, in terms of, of enforcement, I would in, I would anticipate that at some point the Commissioner of Labor is going to talk about conducting audits in the same way that um, the uh, immigration authorities conduct audits of I-9 forms. And so it's going to be very important. And this is especially a concern, I think, for small employers whose personnel files and, and record-keeping uh, may leave much to be desired because they're not sophisticated and because they haven't um, uh, created um, uh, electronic records. And, and that's, that's something that we'll, I think we may want to address, which is whether you can, can do this notice electronically. Um, I think that, that it's, it's going to be very important that for people, for employers to realize that they should have files in which these copy of the notice and the employee's acknowledgement are kept in the file because I, I would anticipate and hope uh, that we will be seeing um, whether spot audits, whether it's an employer who's being investigated for because there's been a complaint, um, that we would anticipate that the Department of Labor would be looking at employers' files. Uh, and I think there's, there is a question as to whether an employer who provides, for example, uh, their employee benefit plans, their notices to employees, they're done um, electronically, whether um, this record keeping can be this the notice has to be in writing to a new hire, and presumably, if you have an offer letter to a new hire, you would include it either with or as an attachment uh, to the the offer letter. Uh, whether there's a way to achieve efficiencies electronically, this notice uh, is is a question. Um, although with a new hire, that's probably unless I would suggest if you're hiring a large group of employees at one time, um, and although given the unemployment rates right now, that, that may not be an issue. Um, and the, the question of since this does not apply to current employees, we're not talking about having to give notice to you know, tens of thousands of employees at one time. But as Charlie said, there is, there are existing requirements in the New York State labor law, notices that you have to give out of pay changes. Your require, employers are required in New York if they have vacation, uh, sick leave, holiday, personal leave policies to either post them or provide them uh, in writing to employees so that taking advantage of electronic forms of notice could be important. But certainly people need to, to, to comply 
start to comply with. If you have a new hire uh, uh, on October 27th, 2009, that new hire should be getting notice of their regular rate of pay and if they're overtime eligible of their overtime rate. I, I agree with Barbara. The, the notice requirement uh, goes into effect on October 26th. Uh, I think it will just be part of the... Uh the new hire paperwork, um, and, and currently uh, uh, employers will simply have to, with, with their uh, human resources and counsel's uh, assistance, uh, draft the notice pending the um, and, and the acknowledgement form pending the, uh, uh, the the state commissioner of labor's uh, coming out with the forms that the statute says they're supposed to come out with. Uh, but in the interim, uh, the statute is relatively straightforward, and I think the only issue, as Barbara indicated, is you know when you're dealing with a salaried employee, you know, figuring out how uh, to explain the overtime rate. Uh, if if the uh, the salary is um, you know is not based on an hourly basis, you'll have to either explain how it's done or or convert it to an hourly basis. Um, but there's there's no question that the statute goes into effect uh, on the 26th. And one thing, by the way, I just wanted to clarify was when we were talking about exempt and non-exempt employees. Simply being a professional administrator or executive employee does not make you exempt. You also have to be paid on a salary basis. So to the extent you're being paid hourly, and that would mean if you take three or four hours off in a day and you dock an employee for those three or four hours, uh, and that person's a professional, even though they're otherwise exempt, they're not being paid on the salary basis, and they're that uh, you may owe them overtime. So it's very, very important that uh, employers uh, check with their counsel about these kinds of issues. Uh, it's not intuitive. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. It's, it's based on rules, which often don't make sense and sometimes uh, are quite archaic. The, the original Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, really looking at an industrial workplace. And the workplace has changed a lot in the last uh, 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 seven decades. But the statute hasn't really been amended too often. This seems somewhat uh, difficult, if not unfair, for some small and medium-sized businesses who do not have the human resources capabilities and don't have ready access to uh, informed labor counsel like both of you. How is the state going to deal with the uh, getting up to speed time frame and the mistakes that these small and medium-sized businesses are going to make? I mean, these 25% penalties are pretty severe for somebody like that. Yeah, I think, again, they're... they're there are there is access to to advice to assistance um it's no secret that you can go online and you can easily find um notice to employers of their uh, a host of requirements under the new york state labor law so i i i don't think it's the lack of availability of resources uh, Craig, that's the problem. It's the disinclination to avail oneself of the resources, um, and and this law will create a counter pressure to that dis- disinclination. But I also think if if someone acts in good faith and makes an attempt to comply, that you're not going to find the Department of Labor coming down hard on them. But but the employer who has been, uh, for example, um, paying a salaried employee um, who's a clerk and has no administrative, executive, or professional functions and has failed to pay that employee overtime over the last 10 years, um, that employer is going to find itself, um, if if and and the 
the one one of the things that's happened as as a, as a result of the new legislation is that the penalties for retaliation have also increased, um, so that the commissioner of labor it used to be a minimum penalty of two hundred dollars um, for retaliation for someone um, exercising their rights under the labor law is now a thousand dollars up to I believe a maximum of ten thousand dollars, and the scope of conduct that's protected against which an employer cannot retaliate has also been increased. So employers need to be aware of that that the um, enforcement environment is changing in that regard as well. And so the good faith efforts to comply uh, cannot get you into trouble. Just disregarding the law, failing to comply, shrugging it off, uh, is what can get you into trouble. I I think that is, um, I was just said, the the procedural issues are not going to be as problematic. In other words, if, if you try to comply, but the notice isn't exactly right, that won't be the problem. It will be the underlying substantive problem if you're not paying people properly. And, you know, you're, you're paying folks, uh, you're not paying overtime when you should be. And that's where you'll have uh, the downside. And, of course, in addition to those uh, civil penalties that uh, Barbara just mentioned, uh, to the extent retaliation also involves something like someone being fired, then there's also a, uh, a back pay component to retaliation as well as an attorney's fees component. So uh, employers who retaliate against employees who complain uh, about um, uh, their rights being violated face face a lot of problems. And I, I can tell you, as, as someone who represents management, often there'll be cases where someone's rights weren't violated at all, but the employer uh, mistakenly or foolishly uh, retaliates and whereas the employer could have prevailed in the underlying case because someone, you know, was getting overtime or was exempt, for example, um, if someone's then fired because they've complained, then the employer will um, will lose in the retaliation case. That also happens in the employment discrimination area. Someone claims they were sexually harassed or discriminated against because of their race, and uh, those claims are um, uh, are baseless. But the employer uh, retaliates which is unlawful, and then the employer ends up winning on the underlying discrimination claim but losing on the retaliation claim. Barbara, I need to interrupt for just a second here because we've reached the end of our program and it's time for us to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information. So if I could, since I interrupted you, Barbara, if you could wrap up with your final thoughts and and, uh, give our listeners your contact information, that would be great. I think the legislation is um, is of, of great benefit to employees, but I also believe that it's, uh, it will also prove to be of the benefit to employers in leveling the playing field between those employers who, who do comply with the law and those who don't. Uh, and good faith effort to comply, I think, will uh, enable employers to um, avoid um, uh, problems with the Department of Labor. Uh, I can be reached at um, 212-269-25. 500, uh, and my email is bmelsack, it's M-E-H-L-S-A-C-K, at G-K-L-L-A-W.com. And uh, this is Charlie Kaplan. Uh, I can be reached at uh, 212-898-5524. That's 212-898-5524. My email is charles.kaplan, that's K is in Kentucky, A-P is in Peter, L-A-N, at SDMA, Sam David Mary Alpha dot com. And uh, I believe that the, uh, to conclude, I believe that these uh, new requirements uh, are just part of a, a host of uh, new legislative and regulatory developments that employers are going to have to face in, um, in the workplace. And uh, it means uh, more of a burden on employers, but it, 
It also uh, should help employers by, particularly this notice requirement, uh, by hopefully properly classifying employees at the beginning and avoiding a problem down the road. Great. Well, thank you both very much for being on the show this week. Um, Charlie Kaplan with Sedgwick Dieter Moran and Arnold and Barbara Melsack with uh, Gorlick Kravitz and Listhouse. We're very much appreciative of you being on the show. And that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with us today. And all of our Legal Talk Network shows are on iTunes as well. Be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.